On February 4th, the world will be celebrating International Pisco Sour Day, and it's a great cocktail. Our two guests today reveal why Pisco should be enjoyed for more than just one day, and in way more than just one cocktail. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Suyo Pisco was truly meant to be. Alex Hildebrand and Ian Leggett, co-founders of Suyo Pisco, happened upon each other while working in the same office. Both are half Peruvian and half American, and both had the vision it took to create something that bridged both worlds. That something is Suyo Pisco. It's great to have them both with us today to explore the journey it took to bring liquid to bottle. But before we get to it, do you want to enjoy a tasting of Suyo Pisco? Well, buy yourself a bottle and then tune into Lush Life YouTube channel. Yes, Alex and Ian led me through a tasting, but you can only find it on my YouTube channel, where you can also watch this entire episode, plus all the other Lush Life episodes, as well as a whole lot more. So check out the Lush Life YouTube channel. Just head to youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. Now, here are Alex and Ian. Well, I'm so excited to hear your story. So why don't you introduce yourselves and then we'll get into your background and things like that. Yeah, that sounds great. Why don't we start with Alex since you started? Sorry, jumping on a little bit there, Susan. Yeah, Alex Hildebrandt, co-founder of Studio Bisco. I live in the United States and uh, a good friend of Ian's, and, and we are now business partners. All right. And Ian? And I'm Ian Leggett, the other co-founder of uh, Suyo Pisco, and I am uh, currently live in Peru. So I manage more of the production side of, of the Pisco, making sure we have police on the ground, uh, the side of production. And I don't know which one of you wants to take this on, but who wants to tell me a little bit about their background? Who wants to start? Alex, go for it. All right, Alex. Sure. Yeah, happy to go either direction on this one, Susan. Personal background, business background, maybe kind of how they how they merged. Oh, definitely personal. How far back do you want to go? From the beginning of time. <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, I was born in Peru. My father's Peruvian. My mother's American. They were there because my, my father was working with his father in the rubber industry in Peru, uh, which... Uh, in addition to mining, is kind of one of the large uh, one of the large industries in all of Peru. We uh, wound up moving to the U.S. when I was three uh, because there was just a lot of political turmoil happening in the country during the early '90s, and uh, I think my my mother was probably knocking on the door quite a bit to to get us back to the U.S. where where she's from originally. She's actually from the West Coast, and the opportunity just came right where my father came to the U.S. to start his own business. We moved to the Midwest which sounds a little bit random on paper, but uh, actually makes a little bit of sense because Akron, Ohio was, and I think to some degree still is, the rubber capital of the world. So that's actually where we ended up. And I spent most of my childhood in, in Ohio. Uh, you know, played sports, was into a lot of different things. Uh, and I wouldn't say anything super unique about my upbringing other than the fact that uh, being multicultural, obviously, uh, has its differences than a lot of the people that, that I grew up with that I had around me. So I always kind of had this, you know, I was super fortunate growing up to have the chance to go back to Peru to visit my family because most of my family does still live in Peru with the exception of my immediate family who's here in the States. So, you know, I've always been relatively closely connected with my family, but 
at the same time, there's always kind of been this aching sensation of not feeling, uh, you know, not feeling Peruvian enough when I'm in Peru and not being American enough when I'm in America. So kind of in this weird in between spot, which is something I always had in the back of my mind. And as I grew older, um, it was more and more prevalent and, uh, interestingly enough, when I reconnected, well, I'll, I'll get to this actually a little bit later, but I moved to Boston after I went to school. I went to college in Ohio, moved to Boston shortly thereafter, where I live now, and um, worked in a few different industries. I spent a lot of time working in investment banking, and then I worked for a healthcare services firm doing corporate strategy and development where I met Ian. I, I won't get too deep into this, the, the business side of this because I'll let Ian go first, but that was a really good opportunity. Uh, he and I, uh, being Peruvian, we bonded and uh, really spent a lot of time talking about how we can build something together that helps bridge both of our cultures. And it was really something that was very conceptual in nature for for a number of years. And then we reconnected in Lima a few years back and uh, came up with this idea about Suyo, which we'll get to a little bit later. But that's kind of the, the bullet points on my background. So now how about you, Ian? And then we'll get to if there's any Pisco in your background. Perfect. So my name is Ian Leggett, as I mentioned, was born and raised in, in Peru to a Peruvian mom and a Peruvian American father. Uh, so I've always had that duality in my in both my countries. Uh, a lot of my family lives in the States and a lot of my family lives in Peru. So much like Alex, I was brought up not feeling entirely Peruvian while in Peru and not feeling entirely American while in the U.S., right? So I grew up in Peru up until I was 18, uh, went to college in New York, and then uh, moved down to Boston, where I met Alex. I was working more on uh, the consulting, strategy consulting for the healthcare services. Uh, so nothing to do with Pisco. Uh, the most I had to do with Pisco was that I liked drinking it. That's that's the extent of my knowledge. But there was always this desire, right, to to bridge both countries. Uh, growing up in Peru, there were so many amazing things that I could that I experienced, uh, both natural resources, people culture, traditions, that I always wondered why why hasn't this become more known in the world, right? So um, the kind of the initiative that Alex had in mind before it was even Bisco, it was how can we create a bridge between both our countries? How can we make Peru known to the world and the world more familiar uh, with what Peru has to offer? Uh, so that's where it all started. Now, absolutely. Now, you both have this kind of dual dual upbringing with the American and the Peruvian. And I wondered, what did the Peruvian side bring? You know, what did you miss when you went down to Peru and you came back to the States? What were those things that you missed about Peru and you thought, oh, they would, you know, I really miss them. I wish they were here. Yeah. Uh, Alex, why don't you start? Yeah. I mean, growing up, I would say the no-brainer is food. The food yeah. is just something that is unparalleled. You can't get, you can find good Peruvian restaurants scattered around the U.S. They're, they are few and far between, and um, you never quite get there. But I would say undoubtedly the food uh, would be mine. And then, of course, you can't beat the weather. I think I was uh, really fortunate that I had a chance to visit a lot, like I said, growing up. And the, the timing is perfect because it, it would basically be like clockwork every year. Once it, you know, when you're in elementary school, you have a couple of weeks of, of Christmas break. I would go down and spend two weeks in Peru where it's the summer because it's the Southern hemisphere. So I'd always come back thinking, man, like, why am I, why am I living in the snow? This doesn't really make a lot of sense, but um, yeah. So cuisine and weather were kind of the two things growing up for me. And you, Ian? I'd say the warmth of 
people. Um, something that I always grew up with was feeling close to people. And, you know, you greet someone, you give them a hug, you give them a kiss, you know. Um, and when, when I got to the States, it was a little bit colder, you know, so I would always get confused whether to shake someone's hand or, or give them a kiss or a hug, you know. So that's kind of that, that, that coziness and that go into someone's house and they receive you with a ton of food, you know. It's something that definitely I missed. And of course, with that comes family, you know, I, I definitely miss just being close to, to my family in Peru. But I got to say, like, after I lived in the States and moved that back to Peru, the one thing I missed the most was uh, delivery services, uh, Amazon Prime, just being able to get something to your door in a couple of days, you know, that's, that's definitely, I was like, oh man, I wish I could order this online and just get it right now. I got so used to it, you know, we, we don't have Amazon Prime yet, but hopefully so. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's so funny. The fact that, oh, the warmth of the people is what I missed. And then in America, delivery. <laughs> I guess I, <laughs> I guess America is the, the land of getting everything right now. So you would miss that. You know, so I remember when I moved to London, I felt the same way. Now we do have Deliveroo and all those things and Amazon. But I was like, after New York, so long in New York, I was like, why can't I get it right now? <laughs> so I do understand that. Now, now, how... Did you find when you started working out that, you know, in the first first jobs that there were no Peruvians? And finally, when you you worked together, you found a Peruvian on the roster and were like, I got to meet this person. <laughs> yeah, that's a good good way to put it on the roster, because we, we do oftentimes kind of feel like we're a team because we we tend to stick together when we do find each other, because they, there are a few Peruvians, I would say, in my experience living in the U.S. We uh, yeah, I would say we kind of sought each other out. And as, as I'm sure you've heard us, maybe online you read elsewhere, you've probably heard us make the joke about the fact that we uh, we didn't recognize each other when we first saw each other because neither one of us probably looks like what many would consider Peruvian, whatever that means. And our names are are not particularly Peruvian sounding either. So uh, we, we chuckle about that one all the time. But um, yeah, we were the only two in the office. So kind of would go over to each other's houses for uh, watch World Cup soccer games because uh, Peru was in the World Cup in 2018. Unfortunately, not this past year, and uh, make drinks and and stuff like that. And what were you drinking? Um, probably probably pisco sours, which we 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 quickly discovered was not our favorite pisco drink. Actually, the more that we consumed them, uh, but a little bit of everything. I think uh, you know it, it's important for us to I think be uh, really transparent about the fact. Uh, we are new to this industry and this is not something that was really on our radar. You know, we both always enjoyed drinking spirits, but in those situations, I, I know we were drinking Pisco, but we probably were drinking a little bit of everything because admittedly you can't find, unfortunately, the, the most Pisco options in the U.S., especially in Boston where we were living. So we probably had just something that we found around the corner and we're like, oh, let's, let's put in a Pisco sour. But uh, the reality is, which we'll talk more about, we just don't think that's the best positioning for Pisco because it's such a complex and amazing spirit and uh, it is highlighted in much, much better ways, not only sipping meat, but in cocktails as well. Well, well, let's get right to that because um, so so you you both decided that you wanted to work together and that you wanted to bring something of Peru either to the States or just to light, should I say, and you settled on Pisco. Now, Wanting to create a spirit and the actual going about making or finding the spirit to make or to distribute are two very different things. So I would love to hear kind of your journey to 
you know, finding that exact Pisco that, you know, lit your heart on fire so much that you wanted to um, bring it to the world. Go ahead, Ian. I can get started with this one. So what you said there, Susan, is really important, your journey, uh, because we see this more than a business. We see it as a journey of discovery, right? And it's, it's not only a journey of discovery to bring Pisco to the world, but it's also a journey of discovery for us to get to know our country more, mm -hmm. right? So it, it all really started if we date back to uh, when Alex and I thought about the site. We were sipping a cocktail at a bar in Lima near my house, and we just looked down and we were both, we both ordered a Pisco drink, right? And I believe we were both drinking a, a version of the Capitan, which is kind of a Manhattan riff with, with Pisco, uh, which we love, by the way. It's amazing. And Alex just looked down and looked up and told, hey, what if we start a Pisco brand? And that's really where it started. We had no idea how to make a Pisco, what makes a Pisco good, what makes a Pisco bad. And, and it just started there. Right? So we initially thought about it in the most simplistic way. Okay, let's contact one of these producers and tell them to slap a label on a bottle and then we can export it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of like the easiest way to create a spirit. And then we talked to probably the, all the biggest producers there. And we realized that the one thing we were passionate about was not just commercializing the spirit, but also growing the category and reformulating the category. And so we started digging a little bit more. And we found that there's currently, there's 531 uh, producers allowed by the denomination of origin to produce Pisco. If you go to the local supermarket, you'll probably find 20, right? So Alex and I were wondering what is going on with the other 510. And that's where kind of our journey of exploration started. We, we decided to scratch the big, what, the big producers and hop on my car, drive to the nearest valleys, which is the, the Mala Valley, and start kind of going door to door, seeing which vineyards would open their door to us and engaging in conversations with them. So we probably visited, Alex came to Peru, probably four to five times in a, in a six-month time frame. And we just started visiting vineyards. And I, I have to say the first thing uh, that kind of convinced us that we wanted to go with her first batch Yes, was the Pisco. We love the Pisco, but more than the Pisco, it was the person behind it. Um, so it's, uh, this woman called Janice Ponceleon, uh, you know, when you meet someone and automatically you, you feel this connection and, and trust, that's what happened. You know, so we, we were received by her in, in the most, with the most warmth that, that I could possibly imagine. She, she led us into her vineyard. We tasted her pisco, and immediately we we realized, okay, this is this is someone who has our same vision of how to grow the category. It's not someone that wants to make a quick dime. It's someone who wants to premiumize the category and make it pride for Peruvians to say we are owners of the most beautiful spirit in the world, right? And that's that's where it all started. Really, it was meeting this person, liking the product, and just handshake agreement. Let's make this work and. This was right before COVID. So the rest was uh, actually the, the product development, which we can go into later, happened entirely during COVID, which was a challenge, but it also kind of gave us something to do in the hours that we were not kind of working our other job. So it was, it was a good distraction. Now, let me get this right. So you have a list of 500 and some. Did you just go, okay, these are the ones that are nearest to me. I'm going to start there. And then 
how long was it until you found this this wonderful woman that you had that connection with? Yeah, I don't know if we necessarily went down the list because we do have the list, but then there's no addresses associated with that list. So we just drove oh. and we went to trade shows. We uh, met people through connections. We asked a producer if they knew another producer and we just started networking and meeting people and we happened to to land in 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 this vineyard and since our first conversation until it was first bottled i want to say it was about a year and a half a year to a year and a half and keep in mind this also includes label design bottle purchases closure purchases which had a longer lead time due to covid it was tougher to get uh, materials back then so it, it took about like a year a year and a half from when we met her to when we got the product out from the port in Callao. Excuse my ignorance, but so you meet a woman with a vineyard and is she, Mm -hmm. was she already producing Pisco? And then you say, okay, this, uh, and also, I don't know if it's a chicken and egg thing. Were you looking for a specific flavor or did that flavor find you? And you said, oh, wait, th- this is this is it. I got to have this. So kind of two things there. She's Was she making it? And then how did that kind of the combination of factors link in and you say, go, go, go? So she, she definitely was making it. Our focus was, okay, we want to highlight single vineyards, right? So currently in, the, in more of the industrialized Pisco, um, what brand tend to do in order to accommodate demand is they buy grapes from different vineyards, mix them all together, create pisco from that. That in our in our mind was um, not it, it wasn't paying tribute to the producers behind the pisco, right? And the producers behind the pisco are the people in the vineyard growing the grapes, caring for the grapes day by day, harvesting the grapes, you know. And by mixing it with all these other vineyards, it loses the sense of identity. Right. So we wanted to keep it single vineyard specific okay. and just bottling each bottle to contain Pisco from one grape, one vineyard in one year. That's our goal. So she had Pisco resting in tanks. And I think it just talked to us to your other question. We, we tried it and it was something that in our, um, at the time, limited experience tasting Piscos, it was the flavor profile that, that we said, okay, we love this. And I think this could change the perception of people uh, uh, on Pisco because it's it's a Pisco that you can sip neat. It has this really nice mouthfeel. It's not something that hits you hard on the nose. And it's a great Pisco to start making people fall in love with a category. So that was kind of our, our main goal. It's like, what Pisco can we introduce? There's such a broad range of flavors in the Pisco industry, but we're like, which Pisco can we introduce that will make people fall in love? And that's that's what we went with. And then, the, yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> and Alex, did you feel the same way when you had the first sip of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. And I, I was just going to joke before that about this this list we talked about with the 500 plus producers. I wish we did have that list at the very beginning. I don't think we discovered this until uh, a year or so ago, maybe a little bit more. We, we quite literally just oh. drove. And that's part of like what it is that we're trying to do. It's this discovery mission. Thankfully, now we... We have so many more contacts where we can pick up the phone, text somebody on WhatsApp, and they'll introduce us to someone if we want an intro for the most part. But um, yeah, we unfortunately, it wasn't that, that easy for us. And when we did come 
uh, across when we met Janice and we had a chance to try her Pisco. I think I can pretty confidently say that it was unanimous. I mean, between the two of us immediately that, uh, in a sense, uh, I may kick myself for saying it this way, but in a sense, we felt like it was the least Pisco-y tasting Pisco. Now, now what does that mean? I think there's a, a misperception of the category because of the brands that do make it at a larger scale who, in our opinion, just aren't making them the way that they taste the best to the consumer. We'll get into the sort of process side of it more, but uh, without getting into the details, we just sort of viewed it as like, wow, this tastes the least like the most common Quebranta, which we find out there, which also tends to be typically from a completely different region. So the vast majority of the big producers are in a region that's about two hours south of where we produce ours. So naturally, because it's such a terroir-driven spirit, you're going to have different characteristics that impact the flavor profile, even though you have the exact same grape. I think that's part of why it tastes so different than what most people expect, because it comes from an entirely different place. But then there's some components to the process of it as well that impact it. And um, so when you decided, yes, this was your Eureka moment, this is the least tasting Pisco, we want to produce this, how does that ball get rolling? You know, does, I, I assume, because it's in the bottle, um, that Janice said, yes, yes, let's go for it. What is your vision? And that your vision's, you know, matched up. Um, how did it get from that vision to the bottle that's behind me? Man, I don't even know where to start on this one. I would say, uh, in, in other- <laughs> Maybe the, the short version. Yeah, exactly. You do the short version and Ian, fill in any blanks that I miss here. I, I would say another component to this, Susan, that, uh, we want to be super forthright about is the fact that Janice and her team at Fund Esperanza, which is what their vineyard is called, are are the masterminds of this product. So they've been doing this for a long time. We found a piece of that we like and bottled it. So from the, from the outset, they didn't create something specifically for us. It was already there. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, sort of the DNA of what we do. We're finding piscos that... Uh, families and independently owned producers have been making for a long time, we're creating a platform for them. The caveat, I would say, is that thankfully, because we've been doing this for a few years now, we have learned a lot about consumer preferences and expectations. And we now have the ability to influence a little bit what happens. So if we're now on the 2020 or 2021 harvest that's being bottled, we can talk to them because we've been talking to them ever since then. Hey, we've been spending a lot of time in the American market and we get feedback from uh, people in industry and consumers that they like something a little bit that's higher proof. So let's aim for something in the 43-ish percent EBV range, whereas historically we're in the kind of 40 to 41% range. Ian works a lot with consultants from different agricultural institutions and uh, people in and around the space to come and meet with these vineyards and talk to them about improving the practices, maximizing yield, things like that that are sustainable. So we leave our our, our fingerprints on the brand uh, by sort of taking our feedback and how to tweak minor senses and somewhat position the product a little bit better for our target market. And then at the same time, we can influence the, the front end of it with a lot of these agriculturally d- driven uh, initiatives that we have that Ian's been spearheading. Mm-hmm. Ian, anything to add to that? Yeah, to to that, I'd add that a, a lot of producers have a, a lot of work on their hands, right? And many of these producers are a team of three, four people uh, maximum, kind of the smaller size producers. And 
managing production, harvest, distillation, and commercialization is a ton to handle. Um, so many of these producers, of course, um, try to create their own brand, but due to viability, lack of time, lack of financial capabilities, are not able to launch their brand in, in the most effective manner. So that's kind of where Alex and, and I come in. We, we help on the technical side, of course, now that we know about the industry, but the beginning, it was us learning from them and us committing to them to help them make their product known worldwide. Right. We we focus on creating a product that will that will speak to the consumers and at the same time pay tribute to the producers. So if you look at the backside of the bottle, you'll see that we're completely transparent about who made it. We even have the the address, the name of the of the person who made it and the DO number, which is kind of the number that identifies the, the producer. So as Alex said, we our, our end goal is to be a platform for many of these small producers who otherwise would not be readily accessible in the market. Fabulous. And since you brought up the label, let's talk about the branding and the marketing and all of that. We already talked about the liquid a little. We'll talk about how it's actually made in a sack, the Pisco itself, and what grapes you use and all of that. But that's part of that's on here anyway. Um, so let's talk about the name. All right. Suyo. Where did that come from? And, uh, you know, how did you all decide on it. Alex. We went through a lot of options. We did some serious brainstorming. And uh, I want to say maybe Ian's brother. I know Ian was the one who proposed the name to me. What I don't recall is who who proposed it to him. But what we learned was that it's a really cool double entendre. We knew the Spanish side of it, of course, because we both speak Spanish. It means yours in Spanish in, in a formal sense. But at the same time, it's a derivative of the word uh, suyu, which uh, in Quechua, which is the language that the indigenous people speak in Peru. Uh, there are kind of two main languages in Peru, Quechua, which is what the Incas and the indigenous people speak, and then Spanish now, uh, you know, after Spanish colonization. But uh, it means region in Quechua. So because everything that we do is single origin, we felt like it was a cool... Uh, cool nod to that concept. So region in Quechua and yours in Spanish. And um, your lovely logo, the bird. Ian, you want to take that? I'll take it. So the the bird is also has a, a couple of meanings. So first of all, uh, pisco or pisco in Quechua means bird. So the shape that we gave it is a nod towards the, the Quechua language. And that's thing that you see in the back of the bird is actually it's actually part of what would be an a wako which is kind of a ceramic vessel uh, that thing in the back is a spout where pre-hispanic cultures used to carry water and other liquids inside this particular wako was inspired in a wako from the paracas culture which is a culture that inhabited the the area which is the epicenter of Pisco production, so in the Ica part. Uh, so we thought it was it was the right way of giving a nod to the historical side of Peru, so pre-Hispanic time of Peru, while also bottling a post-Hispanic liquid. Now, you also have where, where it's made, which is lovely, um, the, the Malavalli and the uh, Quibranta, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, grapes. 
of course, there's eight grapes can be used for uh, Pisco. And was this the only grape that they were making Pisco out of when you visited the vineyard? That particular vineyard, yes. Um, but it's it's important, I think, to give a little bit of history how Pisco was initially produced, uh, right? So Pisco is essentially the the amalgamation of the Spanish culture and the Peruvian culture, much like many things in Peru. This, the Spanish brought over the grapes, which uh, before it didn't exist in Peru. And a couple of these grapes, the uh, Negra Criolla and the Moyar, mutated and evolved into this Quebrad grape, which only exists in um, And it was when the Spanish first started making wine and transporting it to Cusco that the wine would get spoiled because of the long journeys and the heat. So what was the solution to that? Distilling it and making it pisco. And the way they distilled it was using the traditional alembics that the Arabs brought into a Spanish peninsula when they conquered it for 700 years. So you see this this all has influence all the way from the Arab uh, and the Caliphate conquest of Spain that the Spanish then brought to Peru and that it was Peruvianized it, by more so reasons of logistics into what we now have, which is a single distilled spirit uh, that they used to carry into different places of Peru uh, in its distilled form. Yeah, it's one of the only, you know, I think distilled, once distilled, nothing added, natural uh, spirits that's, that are out there. Exactly. Yep. And it's, it's something that tradition kept fulfilling in the sense that uh, it started as the most simple spirit, which is you grab wine, distill it once, bottle it at what you distill it, nothing added, and that's what it is. And it came, it it was perpetuated through the denomination of origin, the regulations that stipulated that this is how the spirit should be made. Uh, so it's really the, to some extent, the the purest form of a spirit and the simplest form of a spirit, which is distilled wine. So that's why Alex and I also are so passionate about it. It encapsulates the essence and, and, uh, of the grape and the wine. Um, but answering your, your previous question, Susan, this, the, um, the vineyard in Fundo, Puente, eh, Fundo La Esperanza sorry, um, is exclusively of Quebranta grapes. So they decided based on a production decision uh, because the quebrantas are usually the most robust grapes. So they're a little bit more resistant to any kind of plagues um, to plant all the vineyard with uh, quebrantas. So they have about 14,000 quebranta vines at about four uh, hectares. And I believe last year they produced, if I'm not mistaken, about 5,000 liters. So it's still pretty small production. Uh, 5,000 liters is about... Uh, 6,000 and something um, bottles. Uh, so it's still a very micro production. The other vineyard that we work with, uh, which I believe you have a, a little sample of, is called Fundo Puente Viejo. And they yeah. do have different types of grapes. They have Quebranta, they have Italia, and they have two more that we still haven't bottled yet, which are Albilla and Toronto. All right, we'll get, we'll get to that in a sec. I'm just going to flip over the bottle. And we have the other label, which again, you said you have um, on each label, I guess, where where it comes from as well, which is, you know, a wonderful tribute to the area. Um, now, the bottle itself, 
And, you know, how among all the bottles in the world did you pick, did you decide to pick this one? Is it reminiscent of anything or, or just right. you thought this was the great bottle? I want to use this. Everything I believe has a meaning. Alex, I'll let you take this one on if you want to explain the, the bottle and the shape of the label. Yeah, sure. I would just say real quick, because I don't want to gloss over this point that uh, so important to what we're doing with our packaging is the producer information on the back of every single label. So the name of the producer, the harvest year, things like altitude, soil content, and then you can even see a map of where it's coming from. Every batch will be slightly different because it comes from a different, it's a different vintage or from a different producer. So Wine World has, of course, done a, a great job of this. Uh, agave spirits more recently, I would say particularly mezcal to a lesser, lesser extent tequila. This is information that consumers are becoming much more interested in. And, you know, I think, I think it's a bit of a shame that uh, historically people haven't really appreciated how, how important these factors are in the Pisco category. So in a sense, we're trying to change the way that people think about Pisco, not because of its origin, but processes that we just talked about a little bit different, different, uh, a little bit there being single distilled, distilled to proof. And, you know, we don't try not to speak in definitives because the world is a huge place and we haven't been everywhere, but, uh, in my experience, it's only by law, natural, all natural spirit in the entire world. There's, there's no other DO that requires that there's only one bottle. I'm sorry, one ingredient in the bottle. And that's grapes, no water, no nothing else at any point. Um, so anyway, just a quick tidbit on that, but the bottle itself to answer your question, Susan, is, um, so the label and the bottle are in a sense inspired by the same shape and there's a, a clay vessel called a, uh, a botija, which, um, in the early days of Pisco production was used to, uh, not only rest the Pisco and also to transport the Pisco. And it's essentially a, a clay vessel that's a, about the size of a human or a small human is shaped like this okay. almost looks like a like a coffin in a sense but much narrower and uh it would be sort of narrower at, narrow at the bottom and then very thick at the top and that also inspired the the shape of of the label and uh the reason we we like this bottle as well is because a lot of the piscos you'll find out there tend to have the kind of taller skinnier bottle uh so this is a little bit different we feel like it gives it a little bit more of a voice in, in, in the crowd when when compared with other uh, other Piscos. You brought something up about I, resting the Pisco. And I was wondering what that does to it. Can you drink it right when it's distilled? How does it transform in the resting period? And how long do you rest it for? By law. So the denomination of origin requires that you rest it for a minimum of three months. We have decided with our producers to rest for a minimum of one year. Now, uh, there are differing opinions on what the right resting is. Uh, at some point, you probably reach a point of diminishing returns. We have a friend who rests for 10 years, which is super unique and is definitely evident in the flavor profile. But um, our first two batches were about 20 months, actually. And part of that plays into these factors that Ian was talking about, where it took us a, a while to bottle it because we were trying to get bottles. So it was resting in these large covered tanks. That really just allow um, a little bit of oxygenization to uh, basically kind of round out the flavors of the Pisco. They, they get to meet each other a little bit better, for lack of a better term. And, um, you know, I, I would say it's really just at the discretion of every producer has a different level of thinking on what resting does. 
there's a key distinction between resting and aging, of course. You cannot age Pisco in barrels, so Pisco is always going to be clear. So you can rest it in neutral containers like stainless steel, glass, copper, plastic, or polyethylene is a very commonly used one because it's it's less expensive to use and small producers can't can't invest in such massive uh, vessels. So um, yeah, the key is that it has to be a neutral vessel. Yeah, that's why I asked because I yeah, wasn't sure if, you know, stainless steel, you know, resting in stainless steel would even change the flavor at all. Now, when you were deciding how long to rest, was it a matter of you like tasting every couple months going, okay, I think that it's ready. Oh, no, no. Let's rest a little bit more. I think that it's ready. No, you know, maybe Ian, take that. Yeah, we, we tend to do tasting panels for that and involve people who we trust both on the consumer side and the production side. And we have an open conversation, right? These producers tend to have a couple of years of vintages in stock. Um, so we taste them straight from the tank. We decide which one we like. If it's not ready for bottling, then we wait a little bit more, right? Or we do um, an oxygenation round where we where we kind of pump the pisco from one tag into another tag to aerate a little bit. And this this allows for a lot of the volatile organic compounds that might be the ones that are a little bit sharp to evaporate. Um, and that helps round up the final flavors. Got it. So once you had the first one, it's in the bottle. Where did you think you were going to start selling it right away? What was kind of your marketing direction or plan for it? Our initial plan was always uh, the U.S. kind of in light of bridging both of our countries. Right? So this was right. a project that we wanted to bring something from Peru to the world. So that's why you'll see the the label is in English. Everything is in English because we we wanted to to share this amazing product with with everyone in the U.S. Just lately, I've started commercializing the product in Peru as well. I want to say uh, about a little bit less than a year ago, because to me, it's also important that whatever is produced in Peru can be consumed in Peru. We don't want to be exclusively an export product. But the the initial batch, yes, that went to the U.S. because there's a longer lead time in selling in, in the U.S. because of distributors and also because of market education. So we wanted to make sure that we had sufficient product to fulfill demand over there. And when you came to the U.S. with it, did you find people open to drinking it? I mean, I know in New York, of course, very sophisticated. There's lots of people, Ivy Mix and Lynette, who have kind of South American focused restaurants and bars. When you went outside of that, did you find that people even knew what it was? Yeah, you, you immediately hit on, on on two of our best best category ambassadors with with Ivy and, and Lynette. You're, you're, you're spot on. Uh, places like New York, uh, California, we recently started selling in also. Uh, San Francisco and LA specifically. I would say even more so San Francisco because it has a, a history with, with Pisco, which we can talk about as well. But those are, those are definitely the primary places that we target. And we, we probably couldn't have chosen a worse time to launch a brand in a new, I hesitate to say new category because it's not new, of course, but to most consumers, it is a new category. So I'll say a small and niche category. Distributors, for instance, which is where you need to go to first in the States, as I'm sure you know, it's very challenging. Every state has different rules. They are uh, the ones who you really have to sell first that there's an opportunity for this. And then they, of course, take it on and then distribute it in their state. They're, they're hesitant to take on something 
in the middle of the pandemic when bars and restaurants are closed and even coming out of that, which we technically launched in the U.S. as we were sort of sort of past or never passed it. But I would say we were on, on the, the downward slope of, of cases of COVID. But there was still sort of that conservative mindset that why would we take on this new thing in a new category when we know we can push what has been working for us as we're trying to climb out of this this hole of the past few years? So that was definitely a challenge in and of itself. Thankfully, con- consumers... Uh, have been looking for something different. You've had the rise of sort of at-home mixology and people have had a chance to experiment with new things at home. So I think that gives them just a automatic, just automatically their, their threshold is a little bit higher for something a little bit new. So, so these forces kind of work against each other. Um, I would say overall more challenges than not given the time that we did it. We haven't really gotten as many data points in these markets that are uh, not the coastal kind of cocktail scene markets yet to really be able to compare. I'm actually making my first trip to the Midwest next week uh, because we uh, launched a few months ago in Kentucky and Indiana. So I'll, I'll really get my kind of first flavor of, of what the reception is in those markets. Anecdotally, it seemed like it's been pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, there are fewer liquor stores and fewer bars, of course, for capital who focus on these things, but there definitely is opportunity there. And you know, I, I don't want to over overlook those, but of course you have to be at the big names in New York. And that's really what we've been trying to do. Less so than targeting Peruvians at Peruvian restaurants, which may seem natural. It's more so how can we get the consumer who has maybe not had Pisco before, but very clearly has shown that they're willing to trade up for something new, experiment with different cocktails. So it's kind of high-end mixology bars we've tried to set like sort of a base of top accounts. And the hope is that things kind of trickle down from there. People see that, oh, you know, employees only is carrying our product or 11 Madison Park or Overstory in New York City. Like these are the types of places that can really, really move the needle. So that's kind of where we've been focusing most of our time. But East goes a product for everybody. So just going to takes a little bit of while. It takes a while to educate people so that we can get there. Absolutely. I mean, I consider myself a drinker, should we say. I know my way around a cocktail. And I remember it's 10 years since Koya Restaurant, a specific Peruvian restaurant opened in London. And that was the first time I had ever had a Pisco Sour or any Pisco drink. And it's only 10 years ago. It's been around for a lot longer than that. And I've been drinking a lot longer than that. And so, you know, thank goodness for these type of restaurants and you guys creating stuff that people who are open to new things just can't, or, you know, new cocktails, new spirits, you know, have something else to enjoy. So absolutely. But since you brought up San Francisco and their relationship to Pisco, you got to go down that road. I got to hear what the special relationship is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was was thinking of saving that one for my, um, you know, if I could drink a cocktail in one place with one person. We'll save it then. Well, I've listened to some some of your other podcasts, so and maybe this will give some context on that. How about we can give the context now and then I can just give the answer, uh, give the answer. Okay. But um, the history basically there, Susan, is, and I'll try to be brief about it, but there is a long one. Uh, basically, ships were coming from uh, Europe or from Asia by way of Europe underneath South America and coming up in Peru to pick up supplies during the gold rush. And then uh, for all of the industry that came after the gold rush, really, and they were picking up Pisco as well at the port of Pisco. And it was making its way up to San Francisco. 
in the late 1800s, Pisco was really one of the most um, commonly consumed spirits in the U.S. because there was such a strong demand for it simply in that area because so much was coming up along the West Coast. Now, there was a bartender uh, named Duncan Nickel, who uh, spirits nerds may be familiar with this story, but I suspect there's a lot of people who will be listening who are not. He had a bar called the Bank Exchange, and he created the, the, the Pisco Punch with um, he was using Italia Pisco. Uh, he took the recipe for this Pisco punch to his grave. So nobody knows exactly what was in it. But the thinking was that it was kind of the, the, the traditional uh, Pisco, Italia in this case, uh, pineapple. Well, he was using gum syrup and pineapple juice, lime juice. And I think that was kind of all that was known he was probably using. And then there was a, a secret ingredient, which again, nobody knows that people have speculated was, was cocaine, which at the time was not common. You know, former Coca-Cola recipe was using cocaine unconfirmed, but that's kind of what people thought. And there was actually a, a rule at the bar that you could not drink more than two Pisco punches in one sitting. So, uh, you had a two per person limit. And I think it was a, combination of it being in such high demand and then also because who knows maybe there was something a little bit a little bit different about this pisco punch that he was trying to be safe but that's that's kind of the quick quick background and a lot of that lore has kind of carried on in, in san francisco cocktail culture gosh i love it i love it um that's a great story it's a great story now now let's get back to your pisco and pisco number two why did you decide that this was going to be number two ian so initially, the number one and number two, the, the reason for the numbering was to add another differentiator on the type of grape, right? So you have number one is Quebranta, and number two is Italia. Uh, we wanted to make it a little bit easier to understand because sometimes uh, pronouncing the names might be complicated for people who are not familiar with grapes. We quickly realized that it wasn't the case and it was adding more confusion than than not, so uh, we are, we, well, we keep it there because it's something that started with the brand and it, it now forms part of the brand. We now refer to the Piscos as Suyo Quebranto or Suyo Italia, which adds a little bit more context to what it is actually from. But, but yes, to your question, the, the number one and number two are actually just the, the different grape varietals that we use. And again, did you happen on your driving tour find this producer and say oh my god that's going to be number two so the reason for having a quebranta in italia it's the two opposite ends of the flavor spectrum so on one end you have the most aromatic grape which is the and the most or the least aromatic grape, which is the right so we wanted to set the bars on either sides uh, present consumers with the opposite ends of the spectrum and then eventually start releasing other limited editions that fall within them. So that was that was the main reasoning. And the way we landed on this one was actually we're looking for another quebranta that we can compare. So we have another batch that we that just arrived to the US that is a quebranta from Puente Viejo. And it's a vineyard that's really, really close to the sea. So what happens is you get this uh, exposed front that receives ocean breeze, which carries with it a lot of minerals. And this creates a cooling effect on the grapes, spikes the acidity, and also adds minerals to the skin of the grapes. So you end up having a wine that's a little bit more briny, and then this transforms into a pisco that has this perception of a mineral taste to it, and it's a drier pisco. Whereas Fundo la Esperanza, being 
deeper into the valley and the sun exposure being more limited, but not having this um, ocean breeze, you end up having grapes that are smaller, but are more concentrated in sugar. So your pisco ends up having these notes of uh, what I describe as peach compote. And we were really looking to explore the differences in one grape between different vineyards. And then we tried the Italia and fell in love because it's this explosion of floral and citrus notes that uh, you, you taste it and you just want to keep sipping. You know, it's, it's an amazing product. And we decided on the spot, we need to send this and have people try it in the States. Uh, since you brought up sipping, let's let's go into like talking about it. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about drinking it and cocktails. So when you decided you're spending your life in Pisco, did you have a specific way that you saw people enjoying this? Was it, it's got to be a great sipping Pisco first and then has to work in the cocktails well, and these are the cocktails that I want to work in. I want it to work well in like your El Capitan or the Pisco Sour, what did you think for the different Piscos? So first and foremost, it needs to be something that you can sip alone. So much like mezcal, much like tequila, uh, that have positioned themselves, particularly mezcal, as a a product that you can sip alone. Uh, We want it to be something that you can enjoy because that's the real beauty of Pisco is that you're tasting the flavor the, the flavor of a distilled grape from a single vineyard in a single year. And so you're eternalizing the flavor of that grape. And to best appreciate it, you need to sip it neat. However, we do realize that many, that it, many people find it hard to sip a 40-something percent spirit neat, right? So we, we do think that cocktails are an entry point into discovering Pisco. Which cocktails? That's... that's uh, um, that's a difficult question to answer because it depends on many people's tastes and preferences. But we prefer or enjoy cocktails that don't mask the flavor of the Pisco, right? So I would go, I think two of the best cocktails to enjoy a Pisco in is Pisco Tonic because the, the tonic actually elevates a lot of the Pisco flavors and a Chicano, which is ginger ale and Pisco, right? Another cocktail, El Capitan, is also a great one because it's basically vermouth and pisco. So you get the sensation and you get the flavors of the pisco uh, through those three cocktails. And I think they're great entry points into getting to know the spirit. Uh, because the pisco is so specific to the grape, do you tend to advise making a certain cocktail with you know having one specific pisco made with one specific grape, grape to go better with tonic? And ginger ale, you know, does it get that specific and nerdy? Uh, again, it's it's taste and preferences. Right? It's it's difficult. No, the the standard. What I would do is the quebrantas or the non aromatic grapes have mm. usually less aroma, stronger body, so those hold up better in cocktails that might have more overpowering flavors, tropical juices, citrusy, more on the sugar sugary side. So for those, I'd use a quebranta. The Italia, the most beautiful thing about the aromatic grapes is the the bouquet. It's the aromas, right? So you don't you want to use it in cocktails that don't mask that aroma, right? So that's when I go into the highballs, Chicano, Pisco tonic, and try to try to preserve that the, the citrusy aromas that you get through the aromatic grapes. 
you know, it's funny. I heard you, Alex, say something. Hold on. Um, uh -oh. that, and I know. I can't remember if you said, I heard about, uh, that Peru or Pisco was hiding behind the Pisco Sour. You notice we haven't, we haven't talked about it yet, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So we have to unpack that. Yeah. So I have not heard the word Pisco Sour said here today, except by me. Yeah, I mean, like here, here's here's my hot take for the day. Uh, stop stop hiding pisco behind your pisco sour if you haven't tried it before. Uh, we we understand and appreciate the power that pisco sours have as a gateway cocktail, right? It's it's delicious, uh, but it tends to turn some people away sometimes because it has the egg white. But more importantly to me is it masks the flavor of a lot of different piscos because once you start adding lime juice, simple syrup egg white there's just kind of so many components that you don't really get to appreciate the nuances of not only one great variety to another and also you know kind of the batch to batch distinctiveness that we like to talk about so well um, I, I like a pico sour i just i will never lead with that i will never ever lead with that because there's so much opportunity out there we like to keep it simple i like to recommend things to people that they can make at home so to be more prescriptive, even maybe than Ian was being like, our Italia is a really good substitute for a gin. So Pisco Tonic, like he said, nailed it. I would throw it in a Negroni. Three ingredients, that's it. It's simple. Um, so yeah, there's so many opportunities, but I always encourage people. I think we've like kind of run in right into what I always ask, which are the top tips for the home bartender. I think you've You've kind of answered that already, but if you have any others, do tell. Say, Ian, did you have any? I'd say I'm a big fan of using fresh ingredients. So there's uh, there's a beauty in using freshly squeezed lime juice, freshly squeezed pineapple juice, and there's no substitute that comes in a can that makes uh, that that reaches that level of, of flavor. So I'd say definitely fresh fruit uses and citrus. Peels are your friend. Uh, any cocktail you can elevate by just expressing a citrus peel over the top uh, just brings out the aromas, makes things much more pleasant. And you, Alex? Yeah, I mean, I'll stick with my my keep it simple. Do not overcomplicate it. Don't overthink it. It's easy to watch these shows on TV. And oh, I want to make this really. These people who make these are professionals. They're they're essentially chefs in a sense. Um, if you want to do that, that's great. But you can make some really, really amazing cocktails at home by keeping it simple. And don't underestimate the value of bitters. Take a gin and tonic. You want to take it to the next level? Give it a couple dashes of bitters. That's good. That's going to change the complexity of the drink a little bit. And it's so easy. Just keep a little thing of, of Angostura bitters. Great, great. Now, um, the other specific question I ask is if you could be anywhere drinking anything, where would that be and what would you drink? Um, I know we touched on it, Alex, but first we're going to have Ian and then we'll finish with you, Alex. You know what? I'm, I'm feeling a beach food right now. So I think I'd be, uh, it's, it's warm outside. So I just want to get out to the beach. So I think I'd go to, to this uh, place north of Peru. It's, it's in, in Buda. Uh, it's called Mancora, which is a beautiful beach with, um, it's so it's a long beach with the rocks protruding in the coastline, and used to go there uh, throughout my childhood. So it brings up these these great memories. And what I'd be drinking, I think I'd need to go with something refreshing. So I'd, I'd probably go for a chicano while looking at the waves in Mancora. Oh, sounds divine, Alex. 
man, I was looking out my window here in Boston and seeing snow and uh, thinking about changing my answer. Um, I'll stay. I'll stay where I was and uh, say it would be a lot of fun to have have the OG Pisco Punch at the Bank Exchange in San Francisco with Duncan Nickel himself, and then on the other side, maybe uh, Rudyard Kipling, who I may not you may not have seen this, but he's made some some fun comments about the Pisco Punch in some of his books. Uh, he was a big fan of the Pisco Punch, tried it. I don't know if he tried it in San Francisco at this point or elsewhere, but there's some quote where he says it's like it's compounded of the wings of cherubs and a couple other things in you know, his his poetic way. So I would like to be sitting next to both of them sharing. Oh, I love that. And I'll definitely find the poem or I'll try and find the poem and put it on my site. But oh, that's great. That's great. Thank you so much for spending all this time with me. Yeah, um, it's been it's been such an education. And, you know, it was great to learn all about um, Suyo. And I wish you all the best. And and number one, when when are we going to be able to find it in the UK? Oh, man, uh, we would love to. Maybe we can connect offline about this. Uh, we, we've been having some conversations with folks about this, but haven't seemed to find the right path for us. But uh, we would love to love to be available there as soon as possible. So anyone is going to New York, go get it if you can find it in New York uh, and, and California and all those places. I want to see it in every state and we'll see it in, in the UK soon. And uh, again, thank you guys so much for spending so much time with me. It was great. Thank you, Susan. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us. I want to thank Alex and Ian for being on the program. Also, a huge thank you to Suyo Pisco for sponsoring the episode and the transcription for The Hearing Impaired. Just to be different, we're celebrating International Pisco Sour Day with another fabulous Pisco cocktail. Y'all know what a Pisco Sour is anyway. As I said, our cocktail of the week is not a Pisco Sour, but an El Capitan. Add one and a half ounces of Suyo Pisco Number 1 Quibrante and one and a half ounces of sweet vermouth to a mixing glass. Add ice and then stir, stir, stir. Then strain it into a coupe glass. After that, express an orange peel for both aromatics and throw it in for garnish. And don't worry, you can find a recipe for the Pisco Sour, more Pisco cocktail recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Changes will be happening on Lush Life, but nothing grave. We'll reveal all next week. If you live for Lush Life, then make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants and show them some loving. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Next time, we'll be drinking a sparkling rosé that is served in some of the greatest restaurants in the world. And it's alcohol-free. Until that time, bottoms up.